This is Tom Hanks. Do you know an undiscovered musician who deserves a break? Well, we have an idea for them. NPR Music is holding a tiny desk contest to find one great unsigned musician to play the iconic Tiny Desk concert series and tour the United States with NPR Music. All you have to do is shoot a video of your musical act playing an original song behind a desk and submit it by January 29th. Learn more at npr.org slash tinydeskcontest. What's good, y'all? So before we get started this week, we have a favor to ask. We want to know how you're feeling about race relations in America as Donald Trump prepares to settle in to the White House. So if you could just take a few minutes to call us and tell us 202-836-7703. And who knows, we might just air your message on an upcoming episode of the Code Switch podcast. All right, cool. On to the show. You're listening to Code Switch. I'm Shireen Marisol Meraji. And I'm Gene Demby. Hi, I'm Richard Blanco, uh, the fifth inaugural poet in U.S. history, the youngest first Latino and gay person to serve in such a role. And this is the third and final conversation in our series on President Obama's racial legacy. So the inauguration was January 21st of 2013, that year. The whole ceremony, there's just something so sacred about it. And you feel like you're just part of something really so much, so much bigger than yourself. And there I was, a little Cuban gay kid who grew up in a suburb of Miami, suddenly addressing the whole nation. One sun rose on us today, kindled over our shores. This immense sense of gratitude overcame me. Um, Gratitude for my parents and my grandparents and all their hard work and sacrifices as immigrants, as exiles. And in some ways, I felt like I was part of a story that they began a long time ago. Under each one, a story told by our silent gestures moving across windows. And in fact, it was my mother I took with me to sit right next to me at the inauguration. And I was still revising the poem while I was waiting to be called up to the platform. I was still doodling on the poem. And my mother kind of like slapped my hand, told me to stop fidgeting and pay attention. And she gave me a little piece of candy to calm down. (laughs) Silver trucks, heavy with oil or paper, bricks or milk. In some ways, she's the one who should have read that poem to our country. To teach geometry or ring up groceries, as my mother did for 20 years, so I could write this poem for all of us today. And it was kind of an acknowledgement of, of I'm not this poet here telling everybody how to feel or be or think, right? I am one of us. I'm one of the people in this poem. My mother is one of the people in this poem, is one of America. As you can imagine, it's one of those moments in your life that you never forget, and some days I still wake up and think, was that a dream? Did that really happen? You know, Gene, Richard's story reminded me of something we've been talking about a lot on Code Switch Mm -hmm. amongst ourselves. Um, We haven't really touched on it in parts one and two of these Obama racial legacy pieces. Mm -hmm. Um, But You know, it's the fact that President Obama, yes, he was the first black president of the United States. Right. But he also inhabits a bunch of different identities, too. And so lots of people, all kinds of people, especially people of color, um, we could project our stories onto him. Mm -hmm. And while he never, let's just make this clear, never represented a post-racial America, 
In a lot of ways, Gene, he did represent a multiracial America. Yeah, and this is, you know, this is something you say a lot, that lots of people, <laughs> this is your saying, live on the hyphens, mm-hmm. like Richard, who is a queer Latino immigrant, right? And you know I'm all about repping Obama's mixed-upness, mm-hmm. because I'm mixed up myself. Are you, Shereen? Yes, I am. I'm Iranian and Puerto Rican. Did you Are know you? that? That's, wow. Yes, my dad's Muslim, my mom's Catholic. <laughs> You've never said that on the <laughs> podcast before. I'm so glad you shared that with us. You're welcome. And Shireen, of course, there have always been stories in America like yours and like Richard's, you know, the hyphens. Mm-hmm. Um, but over the last eight years, people have paid a lot more attention to them. Those stories have gotten a lot more oxygen. But we're going to go back to Richard later in the show. First, let's get into the third and final roundtable conversation we're having about President Obama's racial legacy, which gets into some of this. Mm-hmm. Angela Rye runs Impact Strategies, which is a political advocacy firm in D.C. You've probably seen her clapping on folks as a political commentator on CNN. Nikhil Singh is the author of Black is a Country, Race, and the Unfinished Struggle for Democracy. He teaches social and cultural analysis at NYU. Thank you guys for being with us. Thank Thanks you. Thanks for having me. So something we've been wrestling with on Code Switch as a team, and we are a multi-ethnic uh, multiracial, multi-generational team is whether President Obama will be remembered 50 years from now as our first black president or as, you know, on the census, our first some other race president because of his hybridity and because of the fact that so many people could project themselves onto him. To borrow from one of Nikhil's articles, um, he's Barack Hussein Obama of Honolulu, Jakarta, Nairobi, and Chicago's South Side. So will we be looking at him as our first black president or something else? So I think he will still be the first black president, um, in part because in this country, the one drop rule is still real. Um, And I think that he has claimed and proclaimed his blackness. And if for some other reason, folks wanted to snatch his black card, they have Michelle Robinson, um, Obama. I can't remember her middle name Levon. just now, but Levon. I want Levon. Yes, he's he called her full government, full um, government at the speech. Yes, yes. Um, so I think there's no question of Barack Obama as our first black president who won two times. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I have to agree with that. I think that the the crossing of what I call the symbolic threshold of of, of Obama becoming president and the first black president was such a significant thing. Having studied American politics, you know, my whole life, I never thought that we would see something like that. So I think that we will always remember him as our first black president. I think that the kinds of racial conflicts and the kinds of ways in which he was racially abused during his presidency point to the fact that he was the first black president. I think that what has followed from his presidency has also affirmed the idea that he was the first black president with the rise of someone like Trump. Now, having said that, I do think there is something important in your question, which is that Obama has this kind of globally connective history that ties together a more complicated story about race and immigration and different kinds of positions within the world um, that are connected to the history of blackness, which has always been a global story, right, that, that crossed oceans, that involved diasporas, that involved people speaking multiple languages. You know, and, and I think that that is something that he opens up. And when I read Dreams from My Father before he became president, you know, I was astonished 
that we could have somebody with that level of kind of racial literacy and complexity in his understanding of how people are positioned differently in relationship to each other in the world as our president. You know, and it's clearly uh, one of the most lamentable things about what's now about to to transpire, that we have somebody who, who represents almost the opposite of that sensibility and understanding. So if you could recklessly speculate about what, you know, the racial order might look like a generation from now, what would you, if you were just prognosticating, what would that look like to you? Well, you know, anti-blackness runs deep. Mm-hmm. It's it's a deep core part of, a, of the foundation of American social life. Um, I think the thing that, that has happened in part in the period since 9-11 is, is that we've seen some of the ways in which anti-blackness can actually be extended outwards and, and incorporate other groups into its sort of lethal purview. And, can, you, can you give an example of that? Uh, well, I think, you know, we, we didn't talk much about Islamophobia uh, 15 years ago. And we certainly didn't have the idea that these kinds of people could also be subject to extreme police measures up to and including being killed with impunity. You know, and I think now that's that's all routine part of our, our thinking about the war on terror. And I think that we saw in the prisons of of Iraq and in the torture chambers in Afghanistan a kind of extension of much of the brutality that goes on in the American carceral state with African-Americans as the primary uh, victims of that brutality at home. And so the migration between war abroad and racism at home is, I think, a a kind of a feedback loop. Angela, you want to add to that? Um, I think I kind of want to go in a different direction. I think that his presidency for me um, has left me, I mean, even right now as I wrestle with going from his presidency to one of someone who literally at every turn questioned the legitimacy of this black president, of his transcripts, of his birth certificate, um, and, and all of the racism and just watching us, uh, black folks, brown folks, just asking for acknowledgement you know, just to see us, um, just to respect us, just to acknowledge that black lives matter. So to think about how we have this man that's in the highest office of the land, he's the commander in chief, but we're just asking for basic rights and access. Um, And so that conundrum is real for me even right now wrestling with that. I mean, going to that conundrum Mm -hmm. thing, I'm thinking about his farewell address. Yes. Let's listen to some of President Obama's farewell address where he's talking very explicitly about race relations. For blacks and other minority groups, that means tying our own very real struggles for justice to the challenges that a lot of people in this country face. Not only the refugee, or the immigrant, or the rural poor, or the transgender American, but also the middle-aged white guy who, from the outside, may seem like he's got advantages, but has seen his world upended by economic and cultural and technological change. We have to pay attention and listen. For white Americans, it means acknowledging that the effects of slavery and Jim Crow didn't suddenly vanish in the 60s. That when minority groups voice discontent, they're not just engaging in reverse racism or practicing political correctness. 
When they wage peaceful protests, they're not demanding special treatment, but the equal treatment that our founders promised. So how did you both metabolize that part of the speech? I'm curious. Um, you know, for me, I have to acknowledge the fact that throughout this election, the one silver lining was the SNL Black Jeopardy skit. Welcome to Black Jeopardy, the only TV game show where the audience is in church clothes. (laughs) I'm your host, Darnell Hayes. Our contestants are Keely. Hi. Shanice. Okay, now. And Doug. (laughs) I've watched it a thousand times and it's still really funny, but it was remarkable writing. We should just um, explain what that Black Jeopardy ske- sketch was. Uh, Tom Hanks was on as the third member of Black Jeopardy, the third contestant who was a white working class dude. They told me a fella can win some money, so let's win me some money. Get her done. And uh, it turned out that a lot of his answers, <laughs> like a deep suspicion of the government, mm-hmm. <laughs> there were things that he had in common with, mm-hmm. with black people more broadly. You could see solidarity there, but the race stuff. Let's take a look at our final Jeopardy category. Lives that matter. Was when it got a little sketchy. You know, I got a lot to say about this. Yeah, I'm sure you do. When we come back. Anyway. And and I just think to that point, um, people in power and elitists and rich folks have done a number on us in dividing us. And so I actually really appreciated that line of Barack Obama saying, you know, we need to tie our struggles together. And I have to be really honest in saying, here's the conundrum piece again, because if he didn't throw that line in there, they would have shut down. They would not have heard him. Like The room was mostly black and brown. I was there um, doing coverage for CNN. And, and so there, there were white folks, but it was still a majority minority room. And so that's all the cheers. And of course, this is, these are our kitchen table conversations. But we have to start debunking this myth of the white working class voter or person as completely different from the black or brown or Asian person in that same space. And the only way to really do that is to draw some parallels. Does that mean that I should pretend like your privilege isn't real because you're working class? No, but it does mean that your individual story may be one that I could relate to or members of my family could relate to in ways that we haven't been able to talk about because we can't even hear each other. I do think that part of the speech is where Obama shows his true gifts as someone who can kind of paint a word picture of what an inclusive society looks like. And also his gifts as a politician, which allowed him to speak to race and class simultaneously in a way that was ac- that's actually quite concrete. Uh, there was a story in The Guardian in the election season where they're interviewing a, a white worker in West Virginia, which is like the epicenter of the white working class, deindustrialized, you know, impoverished, without a sense of a future, opioid addiction, declining life expectancy, uh, lots of domestic violence, lots of police abuse, similar things that you see in poor communities all over the country, who says, well, I voted for the black guy in 2008 and 2012, but I'm going to take my chances with Trump this time. Now, that I voted for the black guy has the edge of contempt, right? It has the edge of mm-hmm. racial contempt. Absolutely. But he voted for Obama twice, you know? And I think that there is something to that that we have to actually be able to think politically about how we're going to address what we're up against. However, uh, it does mean that if we're going to meet people where they are, right, we have to try to speak to them where they are as a starting point and believe that it's possible to produce a common ground and a common understanding. 
So I think it's not about avoiding race and racism. I think we have to hit it head on in organizing white people. So I disagree with that part of the left that wants to say we have to kind of downplay it in order to achieve solidarity. That will never be a decent or stable or robust solidarity. But I think to imagine that we could go it alone in this country as people of color would be mistaken politically. And I don't think that that's how Obama approached these questions. And I think that's why he was so successful. Um, I think we have to build on the way in which he was successful rhetorically and in his understanding. That's why the loss of this election is so huge. Uh, Obama was trying to kind of right the ship in, 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 in a very incremental way. Uh, and perhaps he wasn't audacious or ambitious enough. I mean, we could go round and round on that mm -hmm. question. Um, but clearly now we're, we're sort of off the precipice again. So, I mean, I'm, I'm obviously very worried about what's going to come, as, as many of us are. Um, but I don't think this started with Obama. This started long before Obama, the kind of problems that we're facing. More of our conversation with Nikhil and Angela after the break. And ahead of the inauguration of Donald Trump, Richard Blanco shares his memories of President Obama's second inauguration. Stay with us. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Ben & Jerry's, a B Corp committed to using the power of business to advance progressive social change. Since the company's earliest days, Ben & Jerry's has been about a lot more than just euphoric ice cream. Today, they believe that dialogue can bridge differences, promoting a more just and equitable future for all. Join Ben & Jerry's on a journey to better understand issues of race in America and get involved at benjerry.com slash racial justice. What's good, y'all? So we know that listening to the news all week is a duty and an obligation of citizenship and also sometimes really a pain. But wait, wait, don't tell me the NPR News Quiz is like Advil for the aching mind. And it gets even better because Tom Hanks, the Tom Hanks of Sully and Captain Phillips and Philadelphia and, and Forrest Gump, is guest hosting the show. That's what's up. So listen to Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me with special guest host Tom Hanks of everything on the NPR One app and at npr.org slash podcast. We're back. And Gene, mm -hmm. we're talking about President Obama's racial legacy. Mm -hmm. And President Obama himself is a total optimist, or yes. at least that's how he comes off in all his speeches. Mm -hmm. And in classic fashion, he encouraged us to look at the bright side of life in his Final speech yeah. as president. Yeah, that is how he gets down. So we decided to play that part of the speech for Nikhil and Angela to get their feedback. And that's why I lead this stage tonight even more optimistic about this country than when we started. Because I know our work has not only helped so many Americans, it has inspired so many Americans, especially so many young people out there, to believe that you can make a difference to hitch your wagon to something bigger than yourselves. Let me tell you, this generation coming up, unselfish, altruistic, creative, patriotic, I've seen you in every corner of the country. You believe in a fair and just and inclusive America. You know that constant change has been America's hallmark, that it's not something to fear, but something to embrace. You are willing to carry this hard work of democracy forward. You'll soon outnumber all of us, and I believe as a result, the future is in good hands. <laughs> you know, 
how do you feel about that? How, how does that sound to you right now mm. in this moment? Uh, he has to be um, optimistic. Just I think you, you have to be to survive. Um, but I do not agree with the statement where he said he's even more optimistic than when we started. Oh, hell no. Like, hell no. no, sir. Like, I remember the tears that I cried when he got elected and Michelle had on the black and red, yeah, black and red. Uh, Narciso yep. Rodriguez dress. Like, <laughs> no, I remember that cry versus the cry that like somebody died being on the stage watching that speech on, in Chicago. So, no, I don't agree with that. However... I don't think that that is a permanent pessimism. I don't think that it is a permanent loss. I think that we just um, suffered a setback. And again, when I think about people of color and our ability to just thrive and move and be resilient, I'm not concerned about that. This is a minor setback, you know. I just don't agree that I'm more optimistic than where we started. Not in 2008. I'm not more optimistic than that start. Maybe the slavery start, but I wasn't here for that, you know. I think it's right to call it a, a setback. Uh, minor, maybe, maybe not. We'll see. Um, <laughs> but I do think that optimism statement at the end was, you know, it was way too much 2008, not enough 2016. Mm. I, I do want to get outside of our borders for a second and mm-hmm. how it played itself out on a global stage and what you think his legacy is going to look like beyond our borders and mm. where you think race fits into all of that. Well, I think that's a great question. And, and again, I think it's it's a little bit uh, up in the air now, you know, and I think we're we're going to have to see how things play out. I do think that once again, hearing his farewell address, I was reminded of just what an amazing um, sort of spokesperson he is for the best version of American history. You know, uh, the version in which American history is really a story of 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 kind of ever expanding inclusion that comes about through struggle, often from people who are severely marginalized and subject to extreme forms of violence, regardless of whether we think Obama lived up to that as the kind of, you know, president who pioneered the use of the drone and targeted assassinations and things like that, which I think are actually pretty awful and terrible legacies that we haven't really talked about. Um, The picture of American history and the sort of the best version of that history is one that I think we should obviously still be aspiring to. Um, And I think that in aspiring to that, there is a bigger message for people in the wider world. There is a message that tells a story of a country in which immigration has not been viewed with fear, or if it's been viewed with fear, that's been overcome by a sense of the value of adding different sorts of people from different parts of the world. It's a nation in which a group of people who were enslaved and stigmatized in the most severe ways were able to actually seize the language of freedom and democracy and achieve over a long, long period of time a modicum of of respect, cultural recognition, inclusion, up to the point of being involved in the highest levels of of the making of the nation, right? I mean, I don't want to make this into a kind of a PN to American exceptionalism, right? right? But these are not stories that exist in every place. 
And I think they are stories that have a wider purchase and importance. If we can get our own house in order, and if we can become a country that actually is committed to being in the world in a non-coercive, non-imperial way, and also show domestically that we're able to achieve um, a standard of justice for all the people who live here and all their diversity, that's a kind of a model for how we have to move forward in the 21st century towards an international or transnational society. Um, and to have a sense, as you know, as King put it, that the the arc of justice, you know, the, what what is it? The, the, arc, the, moral mor- the arc of the moral universe is long and bends towards justice. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know that I think that that's ultimately true, but I think it's a it's a good it's a good idea to live by. That was Nikhil Singh, who is a professor at NYU and the author of Black is a Country, Race and the Unfinished Struggle for Democracy. And Angela Rive, Impact Strategies, who is also a contributor to CNN. Okay, let's turn back to Richard Blanco now. We heard from him earlier. He recited his poem, One Today, at President Obama's second inauguration four years ago. Mm -hmm. And he told us about the first time he met President Obama, which actually wasn't at the inauguration that day, but a couple months later. You know, it's interesting. And I had never been to an inauguration. And I thought, well, the inaugural ball, I thought, was a ball, like Cinderella. (laughs) 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 Like, that'd be a sit-down dinner and... uh, I'd be dancing salsa with Mrs. Obama and, <laughs> and perhaps have a martini with the president and ask him what he thought about the poem and whatnot. But of course, it's nothing like that. So really, really didn't really get a chance to meet much during the actual inauguration. However, uh, they were very gracious and um, they asked me uh, to meet with him at the Oval Office about a couple of months later, sort of a, as an official thank you. And that was more nerve-wracking than the inauguration itself. <laughs> there was in the Oval Office. There's nowhere to run. Um, <laughs> but I got to tell you, he was exactly the person you sort of see on TV, maybe even more natural, even more gracious. Mm. He was kind of like the president next door and gave us big <laughs> hugs and showed us the back room. And it was like I'd just gone to visit a friend, and it was just really wonderful because you know, in some ways I was fearful that I'd be disillusioned as with when you meet movie stars or something like that where you see another side of them that perhaps you didn't want to see, but that wasn't at all how it was. <laughs> did you uh, did you take your mom that time when you went to meet him in the Oval Office? No, I didn't take my mother, but I took my partner, Mark. Um, I think my partner would have... <laughs> would have been too much if I took my mother's. Well, plus my mother gets very nervous uh, when she has to speak English. (laughs) She would have been a complete wreck. (laughs) Although I'm sure after I saw Obama in Cuba, I'm sure he he could have thrown a few Spanish phrases at her. (laughs) And I'm sure he would have been equally as nervous. Yeah, there's nothing like meeting a mom, (laughs) anybody's mom, right? So how does a Cuban assembled in Spain and imported to the USA, and I'm looking <laughs> from your online bio here, how do, you yeah. s- how do you see the racial legacy of President Barack Hussein Obama? Well, you know, it's interesting. I've done a lot of sort of thinking about that. Um, you know, we have at the end of eight years what would seem that we're more divided perhaps than where we began. But I think the important thing about his legacy, not just in terms of racial issues, but I think in so many ways, ask a lot of important questions that perhaps we weren't asking of ourselves or we were sweeping under the rug. And I think history will remember him and, and his legacy as sort of the beginning of opening up that dialogue to get to a place where indeed we do fulfill those founding ideals of, um, as our motto says, out of the many, one. So I think that's really the long term. It's, it's hard to sometimes think about it 
because in the short term, it, it might not feel that way. But I think that's ultimately, he was a game changer. I mean, he moved the needle on so many levels. And no matter where we begin this new presidency, um, we need to sort of take a step back and understand that whatever conversation we're going to have about things now, about race, about health care, whatnot, it's going to start at a new level. I mean, the bar has been raised. So we're having conversations that wouldn't have happened eight years before. Would you call him America's first black president? Uh, would you call him America's first other president, meaning, you know, some other race, if you look at the census? That's, uh, that's an interesting question. Um, hmm. Well, because um, I'm I thinking would... of you living on, hyph- you know, you're living on many hyphens and Barack Obama. Yeah too has lived on is living on many hyphens you know we recognize it certainly as the first african-american president but that's not sort of the only platform that he ran on and certainly it was about how we're all sort of connected and the way his presidency is reflected in the inaugural poem this idea that that there is only one america right but i think what i most admire about his presidency is that he broke so many boundaries he's he's a he's an outlier i mean in terms of his age in terms of race in terms of um accessibility um he just sort of broke the mold in a way that i don't think we've seen since kennedy in a sense you know um he represents the new America in so many ways, and it's the America that I that you know is is present today. And I think that was so important for so many people. Um, if I was made in Cuba, assembled in Spain, and imported in the United States, his little biography would be much more complicated. Sort of like <laughs> made in Hawaii, imported to here, sent back over there. <laughs> you know, it's it. he he represents yeah that that new America. I think, that new generation of Americans. What are you doing uh, on Inauguration 2017? What do you have planned? Good question. (laughs) Um, I don't have much planned in terms of what I'm going to do. I'm actually going to be in Miami, and so I'm having a little family reunion. Um, But I am planning on hopefully finishing an inaugural poem that I may release on Inauguration Day. (laughs) Um, It's only natural, of course, Thinking back four years ago, what, if I were to read an inaugural poem, what would it be at Trump's inauguration? Mm-hmm. And by thinking about it, I mean really thinking about it, not thinking about it in terms of black and white terms, mm-hmm. uh, but really thinking, what does America sort of maybe need or want to hear right now um, on both sides of the uh, coin, so to speak? Um, it's about interconnectedness, I think, and about where we need to go. What are the next steps we might need to take as a country? I don't think that Trump would ever approve this poem to be read, but <laughs> but it's not it's not a Trump bashing poem per se. But poetry can be very subversive, and I'm sort of thinking about what a poem can say to us all that can help and also call things out as they need to be called so, out, and sort of digging deeper than just the political rhetoric or the political he said, she said thing, but rather, what do we really need to ask right now? Always, always home, always under one sky, our sky, and always one moon, like a silent drum tapping on every rooftop and every window of one country, all of us facing the stars Hope, a new constellation, waiting for us to map it, waiting for us to name it together. 
All right, y'all. That's our show for this week. Thank you so much for rocking with us. Walter Ray Watson and Rund Abdel Fattah produced this episode. Our editorial assistant is Leah Danella. Original music by Ramteen Arab Louie. A shout out to the rest of the Code Switch team. Adrian Florido. Shadrian Florido, actually. <laughs> Karen Grigsby-Bates. Cat Chow. Our editors this week are Neil Carruth and Keith Woods. We're back next week. Don't forget, subscribe to our podcast wherever fine podcasts can be found. I'm Shereen Marisol Meraji. And I'm Gene Demby. Be easy. Peace.